0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. We are back again after almost a week of being on vacation. And taking some time with my son Elihu James Mullet, he's my second oldest son. He is now thirteen. That means that we now have two thirteen year olds in the Garrett Ashley Mullet household. Lorna Di celebrated last night with the kids with a cake and some ice cream and we watched a movie me and the kids did, and before that, we got home late late. Saturday night from New Mexico, and I'm going to tell you all about our trip to New Mexico. But first, I want to talk a little bit about something that kept cropping up repeatedly on podcasts that Eli and I were listening to throughout our trip. We drove down to New Mexico on Thursday morning, started out at about 6.30 a.m., Got a car wash, picked up some burritos from Santiago's here in Greeley-Evans, Colorado. And then we were on our way, stopped in Colorado Springs and picked up some fishing gear. But along the way, we listened to The Republic of Pirates by Colin Woodward, which is a good book about the history of the pirates of the Caribbean, the real ones, who made war on British trade and shipping in part because there was opportunity and in part because they were Jacobites, or a lot of them were Jacobites, and they were protesting and trying to overthrow King George, who was a Hanoverian monarch, and they saw him as not the legitimate king of England, of the British Isles. They wanted their Catholic king, their most Catholic king, back on the throne, And so part of how they were going to press the British, the English, to put off this usurper, as they saw him, was they were going to disrupt trade between England and her colonies in the New World. But that is a story for another day. We are not going to do a podcast episode just yet about pirates. I want to talk a little bit about President Joseph Biden's comments last week with regards to the Second Amendment. And it's interesting, we heard the clip of his press conference remarks several times because we listened to a fair number of podcasts from different persons, different perspectives, different angles. And of course, they all picked up on this, whether they talked about it their whole episode or they just briefly touched on it. What Biden actually said, you can look up for yourself, I'll throw a link in to the podcast description for this episode, but it basically amounted to a mumbling, incoherent, meandering, confused repudiation of sorts of those who believe that they can keep and bear arms in accordance with the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms as a way of safeguarding against a tyrannical government forming here in the United States. That is implicit to the Second Amendment, if not explicit. And I think if you factor in the historical precedent, which that Bill of Rights and that United States Constitution were written in, it becomes very clear that the Second Amendment was not about safeguarding the right of the people to hunt deer and other game. The right to keep and bear arms was not about your right to engage in shooting sports. Of course, those are your rights as well. But first and foremost, the Second Amendment has everything to do with safeguarding against oppression by your government. The Founding Fathers who contributed to the independence of this nation recognized the importance of being able to keep and bear arms, to being able to keep your liberty, keep your individual freedom, and to avoid being oppressed by an out-of-control government which was abusive rather than protective of its people. Now, you think about on the micro-scale, when you're talking about a family, you talk about abusive relationships between a husband and a wife, or between parents and children, and everybody, except for abusive parents and abusive spouses, pretty well agrees that it's not right when an authority figure in a relationship of that sort abuses their power and abuses their authority. It's not right when a spouse or a parent is physically abusive sadistic cruel harsh to those under their authority if a husband is beating his wife is the wife obligated to stay in an abusive relationship well most people inside and outside the church would agree absolutely not absolutely not that woman is not obligated to stay in an abusive relationship. And if the children are being abused as well, she actually has a responsibility to get out. That husband, that father needs help. He needs to get his emotions under control. He needs to learn a more respectful, appropriate way to engage with his wife and his children. And if he comes after his wife and his children to do them mortal harm, because he's just that bent on controlling them, it is fair, although tragic, for a mother to defend herself and her children with deadly force if necessary. Those kinds of situations are absolutely heart-wrenching and heartbreaking and wrong and horrible, but what it would be even worse is if a wife and a mother is murdered by an out-of-control, abusive, monstrous husband and father. His responsibility, according to God's Word and according to the natural law which is written on all our hearts, even when we try to whitewash over it and convince ourselves that it's not there, the natural law and God's law in the Bible makes it clear that a husband and a father has a responsibility to protect, to serve, to love, to provide for, to lead his wife and his children. And when a husband becomes abusive, becomes oppressive, becomes cruel and harsh and destructive towards his wife and his children, that man needs to be removed from his position of authority, whether temporarily, if he can get help, if he's able to be rehabilitated, or... Permanently, he, if he is unwilling to reform and repent and come to Jesus and quit his abusive ways, he needs to be removed from authority in their lives. So, also in the case of the macro, in the case of a government over a wide swath of people, whether that government is a little village, a little town in the middle of nowhere, whether that government is a state government, whether that government is a national or federal government in our American system, it is right for the people to be able to defend themselves against abuse, particularly as a government demonstrates a willingness and a capacity and a readiness to abuse the people, to neglect, to abuse... The disenfranchise, to be harsh, to be cruel, to be oppressive. It is right for the people to keep and bear arms. Now, this doesn't become a carte blanche. It doesn't become a blank check, wherein the people, anytime they don't like what it is that their government is trying to tell them to do, have the right to revolution, and they can just throw off that government for any old reason they come up with. Well, I don't like the flavor of ice cream in this school cafeteria. I'm being oppressed. No, no, you're being petty, you're being entitled, you're being particular, you're being self-absorbed. You don't have the right to burn down the school because you don't like the flavors of ice cream they serve. That's not what it's about. And that's not what the American Revolution was about. People can quibble about how the colonists were under some very, very trivial, uh, you know, disenfranchisements or annoyances by virtue of King George, but go back and really read it. Don't take it second or third hand for people who are trying to undermine the founding of this country because they want to overthrow this country, whether because they're useful idiots or they are closet Marxists or because they're open Marxists. That's increasingly acceptable in our society, to be openly a communist and a Marxist and a socialist. Some people don't even hide it anymore because they feel a certain momentum has built up that will not rob them of success if they declare their intentions openly. But Biden, last week, for whatever reason, decided he wanted to ramble on incoherently about how the blood of patriots is not what you need to, to honor with upholding your Second Amendment rights. You don't need to honor the blood of patriots who died for this country, who served so that this country could remain free. You don't have to honor them by keeping and bearing arms or defending against government oppression and tyranny. You don't have to keep and bear arms. In fact, it's not true that the Tree of Liberty is watered with the blood of patriots. What Thomas Jefferson said, you can just forget about that because good old Uncle Joe here is going to set the record straight. He's going to tell you how it really is and how it really was and how it really is going to be. He's going to rewrite history for us all. No, no, the Tree of Liberty is not refreshed with the blood of patriots or martyrs, if you will. It is something else. He doesn't tell us what, but he just tells us that's not what it is. What he also tells us is that if you think you can defend yourself against an oppressive government with small arms, you've got another thing coming. What in fact you need is F-15s and maybe even some nuclear warheads, some nuclear weapons, because the U.S. government, the U.S. military has F-15s, and nuclear weapons, and you're not going to be able to stand up to the U.S. military without F-15s and nuclear weapons. Now, what everybody keyed in on, everybody that we listened to, Eli and I, on the drive down to New Mexico and back, was that Biden, on the one hand, is rambling incoherently. And that is not said to be disrespectful. That is not said to be rude or to mock him. That is a statement of fact. He was rambling mumbling and not finishing his sentences. He started and did not finish four or five different sentences, statements. And he mumbled. He mumbled as he trailed off, as he would start one sentence and decide, no, that's not what I want to say. I want to say this instead. And he was confused in his thinking. I mean, even if he had been saying his sentences fully and articulately and eloquently, which he didn't, what he was saying is nonsense and is not good. If he had been able to finish his sentences coherently, what he was saying was, you can't stop us if we decide we want to, as you see it, oppress you. You can't stop us. We can do whatever we want to you, and unless you have F-15s, which you won't, unless you get nuclear weapons, which you won't, there's nothing you can do to stop us. So, therefore... Don't worry your pretty little heads about the Second Amendment because it's not going to help you anyways. You might as well give it up. Ooh, that's dark. That's dark, Biden. And it's dark from our perspective. But to the left, that's just common sense. To the left, they don't mind trolling conservatives who are dedicated to resisting the rise of socialism and communism here in America. The left thinks it is just fine to troll Americans who consider themselves patriots and who identify. They self identify as patriots. They are patriots, and so they self identify. The left sometimes will pretend to be patriotic, but it is all smoke and mirrors, and it is all a question of how do you define your terms? They don't love the country as it has been and as it is. They don't love flyover country America. They don't love traditional God and country America. They love the America that they have in their imaginations. They love the America that could be if they're able to take and hold power. That's an important distinction. Now, the vice versa is that conservative Americans who like the Founding Fathers, who actually highly respect the Founding Fathers, maybe even revere, maybe even to an unhealthy extent sometimes worship the Founding Fathers, that side of America maybe only loves America if it continues to be about the principles on which this country was founded. That isn't to say that conservative Americans, And patriotic Americans think that everything that's ever been done by our government or our people has been good. How could you think that? How could you maintain that position? You couldn't, because just as soon as you have a Trump, you have a Biden that follows, or you have a Obama that proceeds. We've had our Franklin Delano Roosevelts, we've had our Woodrow Wilsons, even though we've also had our George Washingtons and our Abraham Lincolns and our Teddy Roosevelts, men who in general, if you're grading on a curve, upheld this idea that America was a good country, fundamentally good, blessed by God, and had a responsibility to exercise its goodness by preserving the liberty of its individual citizens to the greatest extent possible. Not for no reason, but for the purpose of honoring God. This whole idea that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that governments are instituted among men to preserve these rights. That whole idea is predicated on the idea that we should be free to worship God and to practice religion according to the dictates of our conscience. If you're an Episcopalian or a Presbyterian or a Reformed or Baptist, Or if you have no religion at all, so long as you're not out there raping and murdering and robbing and defrauding people and depriving them of their rights, as long as you're not operating outside the bounds of general basic biblical morality, you should be free to operate according to the dictates of your conscience. And if you are free, and if we are all free, then together we are more likely to have a more perfect union, if we're coerced at all times, in all ways, to do what the person at the top thinks is correct, that is either now or will be soon a very dangerous place, which is not conducive to human flourishing and prosperity. It is not conducive to a happy, healthy, holy life that God desires not just on an individual basis, on a corporate basis. It's not good for the town, the city, the state, the nation to persecute individuals who are doing good in the name of the common good. That is not in the common good, actually. Just because somebody at the top might say that they represent the will of the people and that as such they're going to enact a certain policy because eventually, for the majority, this is going to be positive, it's going to be a net benefit. Therefore, if you have to break a few eggs in order to make an omelet, if you have to have some people suffer and lose and die and be defrauded and be persecuted, then it's worth it. You can't have that be good for the polis, for the city-state, for the nation. It is not good. If you look at the Epoch Times here this morning, there is an article up there by Kathy He, the title of which is, Brutalizing Its Own Population Was Hardwired Into the CCP's Core DNA. Bipartisan Resolution Condemns 100 Years of CCP's Atrocities. This is coming up on one century of communist rule in China. And some of the atrocities that are listed, a lot of the atrocities that are listed, have to do with Mao Zedong. Read about Mao Zedong if you want to know more about how dangerous it is to give up the right to keep and bear arms. But Mao Zedong wanted to do this whole great leap forward. He wanted to modernize and industrialize China he wanted to redistribute land. He wanted to take land away from the perceived haves and give it to the perceived have-nots. Never mind that in so doing, you create a whole lot more haves and have-nots. You just reshuffle the deck as to who has and who does not have land and property. Never mind that. He was able to get away with it because he convinced enough of the people to either join with him enthusiastically, or be too afraid to stand up to him. And tens of millions of Chinese died. They were murdered by their own countrymen in something that very much resembles this woke brand of politics, which is increasingly du jour. Your community gathers around you. If you've been accused of being anti-revolutionary, And they decry your lack of patriotism, your lack of love for your fellow man. They hate you and abuse you, in some cases until you die, until your family dies. They do this publicly. That's what Mao's Cultural Revolution, his Great Leap Forward, did. They did it on a massive scale countrywide to where the people became complicit in the atrocities. So it isn't just the Chinese Communist Party in terms of the leadership. It is the Chinese people who became complicit. And that was part of how Mao, like some kind of a a mobster, initiated a whole country of people into this gang. We're going to have you kill somebody and that's how we're going to know that you're a good member of this gang is if you're willing to kill for us. Are you willing to die for us? Are you willing to kill for us? Okay, you're in. And we're not talking about fighting soldiers on battlefields. We're talking about brutally destroying people and videotaping it. Destroying people, mind, body, and soul. Destroying their families, mind, body, and soul. If they got in the way or were just a convenient prop if they were a convenient effigy of sorts for the old establishment, if they liked it, if they represented it, if they embraced it in any way, if they weren't enthusiastic enough in embracing the new system, if they were too enthusiastic in embracing the new system and thereby attracted the ire of the party leadership living high on the hog, they were singled out and they were destroyed. But we're going to condemn a hundred years of that in this country, even as we're having this tug of war about what kind of a country are we going to be? Are we going to defund the police, take away, you're going to defund police and also take away the second amendment. How do those two things work at the same time and also leave you and your family safe from abuse by vicious mobs of thugs and criminals? and anarchists, and communists who want to tear down your door, redistribute your wealth, and redistribute you and your family all over the lawn. It cannot be born. This is evil. It's wrong. It's wicked. An episode I recorded last week before I took my son Eli down to New Mexico highlighted John MacArthur's sermon, his recent sermon, about when government rewards those who do evil and punishes those who do good. Go check that sermon out. Check out the earlier episode that I did about that. It was a great sermon. But that is the kind of circumstance in which you need to have and you need to know how to use arms. It's funny to me, the pundits who talked about Biden's remarks last week keyed in on the fact that The Democrats are calling January 6th in this supposed Capitol building riot in which security guards for the Capitol building actually let in protesters, make America great again, Trump supporting protesters. They let them into the building. The Democrats have called that Pearl Harbor. They've called it an act of terrorism. They've called it sedition and insurrection. And yet it's interesting for all of the protesters who have been arrested and held without charges, put in solitary confinement. They haven't been allowed to come home, see their families, go back to work. Their lives are being destroyed as we speak, as they sit rotting in prison. Those people have not been charged with sedition. Not a single case has gone to court. No charges have been filed. They're just being held indefinitely because... They dared to stand up and say, this is not a legitimate election. We don't believe this election was legitimate. We believe this election was stolen. There's a lot of evidence to that effect. The quote-unquote Capitol riot, even if it were actually a riot in which these people stormed the building, got in, destroyed property, it was carried out by unarmed Americans And so, if we're going to call that Pearl Harbor, and if we're going to say that these people almost overthrew the American government, it's odd to me that Biden will turn around, on the other hand, and say, We need to take away the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And you don't need it anyways because you would need F 15s and nuclear weapons. I didn't see any F 15s or nuclear weapons on January 6th. Did you? Of course you didn't. They were unarmed civilians protesting. And then some of them stupidly accepted a trap. They walked into a trap, a trap that wasn't just set for them. It was set for one whole half of the country so that we could be painted as villains, as lawless, as insurrectionists, as if we are the ones trying to usurp power and undermine democracy. All the while, The Democrats carried out fraud and stole the election. And now we have an illegitimate and bad president who's been sworn in, who is pretending at upholding quote-unquote democracy, all the while eroding and destroying and abolishing the republic in every way possible. I don't buy it. I don't buy the argument. It's not a good argument. Even if it were a good argument that we could use some F-15s and nukes to be able to defend against tyranny. It's still not a good argument for giving up your small arms, particularly if there's a veiled threat in there that our government might use F-15s and nuclear weapons against us for daring to resist tyranny and oppression. That's no longer a government of the people, by the people, for the people. When Democrats, who hold a very slim majority, if you can even call it that, when Democrats won't share power and work together with Republicans. Instead, they want to demonize them and threaten them with nuclear weapons and F-15s. Sorry, I'm not giving up my firearms, my right to keep and bear arms in that kind of a circumstance or any other. I have no reason to, I have no obligation to, I have no responsibility to. In fact, I would argue I have a responsibility and reasons and a right to hold on to them. And so I will. But enough about all of that. With the time I have left, I want to talk a little bit about the trip that my son Eli and I had to New Mexico. Some interesting things about New Mexico. First off, it is the second highest population density of Native Americans as a percentage of the whole overarching general population of any state in the United States of America besides Alaska. Alaska comes in first. It has the highest percentage of Native Americans as a share of overall population, but New Mexico comes in second. What's also interesting is that New Mexico is a majority-minority state, which is to say that the majority of... New Mexicans are not white, and not only are they not white, but they are Latino or Hispanic and Native American. That's the majority, the vast majority, are descendants from the folks uh, who lived in that country, in that part of the country, prior to it becoming a U.S. state. The folks who lived there when it was Nuevo Mexico, the folks who lived there before the Spaniards arrived in the New World, their descendants make up the majority of the citizens of New Mexico. It was odd and not uncomfortable, but just interesting, just different to be in a state where my son and I felt like we were the minority as white people, as Western Europeans Whose ancestors hailed from Scotland and Switzerland, etc., we were not the majority. That was interesting. And it was interesting, furthermore, to notice the way that that community, that culture, that society in New Mexico works differently when that's the case, when the earliest imprinting of civilization and culture didn't come from Western Europe, it came from Native American culture and Spain. And now, yes, New Mexico is part of the United States. And so it looks like that, depending on where you're looking. But it also doesn't look like a part of the United States that I recognize in very many places, unless you happen to catch a US flag which I didn't see nearly so many of when we were down there. I didn't see as many United States flags as I've seen in other parts of the country, particularly in the country. I saw a lot of adobe buildings. I saw a lot of traditional architecture that I associate with movies and pictures of Mexico and the Southwest. I saw a lot of that, and it was cool to see. It was very interesting to see the way that architecture has developed differently where there are far more descendants of Mexicans and Spaniards and Native Americans. But all the same, there's this odd mixing of what I recognize as American culture with what is still, to a great extent, Mexican culture and Native American culture. There's this odd mixing that is like nothing I had seen anywhere else. I noticed, and my son and I both commented on this, that a lot of places are not open at 6, 7, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning. A lot, of place, a lot of places don't open until 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. They might be open late into the evening, but they don't open until mid morning-ish. That was different. That was interesting. It was also interesting to us that late at night when it's like 9.30, 10 o'clock, 10.30, if we're still driving, there's a lot of people out. There's a lot of people out and about walking, riding bikes, driving around. We went out on Thursday night to get a milkshake because the first hotel that we checked into, a Ramada by Windham Albuquerque, was awful. Our hotel, the first night, was awful. I should have read the reviews a little more closely than I did. I looked at the rating in general, and I thought, well, that's not so bad. It was not so good, actually. All all of the paint in the bathroom was peeling off the walls because there was no ceiling fan to ventilate in the bathroom. Uh, the sliding glass door for the balcony was... It, it contained a, a bar that you lock into place at night or else somebody might climb onto the balcony and break into your room. And there was a sticker on the window that said, for your own safety, for your own security, please keep this door locked at night. Then you look onto the balcony and the railing for the balcony has in Sharpie different little love notes between couples who have apparently visited that balcony or that room. And it was just sketchy. It was super sketchy. Uh, We checked out early Friday morning to go somewhere else. We decided we didn't want to stay there both nights that we were going to be in New Mexico. So we checked out early. And as we're checking out, we're in line behind somebody else that's checking in or checking out. And there's this giant cockroach dying on the floor in the corner right next to us in the lobby, and the oddest thing about it is that the parking lot for the hotel had some really nice cars, like really nice, like my son took his Kindle out, snaps of pictures of some of these cars, and they were shiny, they were new, they were well-kept, they were nice cars, and so you look at the parking lot, and then you look at your hotel room, and you're like, ah, this doesn't match up. Right, like this (laughs) these things don't go together. Why are the cars that nice and the hotel room is this bad? But we checked out and it was gonna be a while before a place would open up that we could get a fishing license. And we wanted to get a fishing license to go with our fishing gear because Eli wanted to go fishing. That was the whole reason why he wanted to go down to New Mexico, believe it or not. He wanted to go down there and go fishing for his 13th birthday. And I said, okay, so we bought a whole bunch of fishing gear. I won't tell you how much we spent. We spent a ridiculous amount and we got fishing licenses in Albuquerque. But as we're there in Albuquerque on Friday morning, on the morning of Eli's birthday, we are waiting for Cabela's to open up. And as we're waiting, it's like, well, okay, let's drive around a little bit. Let's see what we can see while things are still waiting to open up. So, I'm looking, and I'm looking at the map, and I see old town Albuquerque. And I thought, just for anyhow, we'll swing in someplace, drive through somewhere, get some breakfast, and we'll just drive around a little bit. I'll look on YouTube, play some YouTube videos of people explaining what there is to see and do in Albuquerque, because we're here. We've got some time to kill. Well, consistently, Old Town Albuquerque came up as a recommendation. So it's like, okay, well, that's just across town. Let's drive over there and let's park and let's walk around. So we did. And lots of neat little gift shops and little artsy places and some restaurants. And this old church, this very old church that was built when the town was founded, when the Old Town Albuquerque was founded, in 1706. The church is there. It's well kept and adobe and beautiful in its way. Like no other church I'd ever seen before, but beautiful in its way and beautiful garden off to the side and trees and this plaza in the middle of this old town. And so we're walking around and it's like, wow, this is really neat. Uh, interesting, just so interesting to feel transported back in time to this place that was part of Mexico. It was a Spanish holding. In fact, when Albuquerque was first founded, 70 years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, it was placed on what was known as the Royal Road. And the Royal Road was between Santa Fe and Mexico City. And so this... Was going to be a little stopover and old town ceased to be the main hub and center of the city when the railroad came through and the railroad decided they were going to put their establishment a little further away and then buildings and businesses and shops and houses and things like that kind of moved over that way. The new stuff started moving over that way and being centered around the railroad. But, It's just remarkable to be in that place which is preserved as much as possible as this old, old town. You know, 315 years old. It's remarkable. Remarkable to be walking around in a place where things are over three centuries old. But we visited Chaco Canyon. We visited Petroglyph National Monument visited Fort Union National Monument on our way down actually, which is uh, this really neat old ruins uh, location where what used to be the largest U.S. camp or fort military outpost in the Southwest was located. And you can walk through kind of the the ruins, uh, just like kind of the outlines of the foundation's uh, the corners of these buildings, a lot of them adobe and brick, uh, that made up this outpost that was placed there so that the army could protect people traveling on the Santa Fe Trail from raids by the Utes and the Apache Indians. We also, on our way back home from visiting Chaco Canyon on Saturday morning, On our way back home to Colorado to Greeley, we traveled through the Apache Indian Reservation. So that was really cool too, to see that countryside and to just imagine 200, 300 years ago, what was it like to be on foot through this territory or to be riding through this territory on horseback with a couple of your friends or your family or whoever, and to be looking behind trees and rocks for a potential raiding party or hunting party or hostels or whoever. Were they going to be friendly? Were they going to be unfriendly? Were you not welcome around there? What was going to happen to you as you were traveling through this country? It's really, really interesting to think about those kinds of things as you're traveling through this kind of country. But it's also interesting to me that as you're traveling through that part of the world and you think about regimes changing, and what was once a Spanish territory, having formerly been Native American land. And you think about Mexico declaring independence at a certain point from Spain. And then what used to be a Spanish territory now is an independent Mexican territory, New Mexico, Nuevo Mexico. You think about what used to be an independent Mexican territory, then being taken by the United States of America and now being a United States state. You think about those regimes and those governments coming and going and changing, and yet you still have people in this place, in this crossroads of America who retain the most important elements of their native culture over generations, over centuries. So also, regardless what happens with Biden and nukes and F-15s and the Second Amendment, so long as we hold to these truths which are self-evident, so long as we hold to God's word, regardless what nonsense they want to peddle about gender being a social construct, sexuality being Baskin-Robbins, any flavor you like, however you like it, as often as you like it. And don't fat shame people because big is beautiful. Regardless what lunacy the left throws out there in desperation, trying to get votes and hold on to votes, trying to get power and hold on to power. If we are committed to what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful, according to God, that will endure and that will outlive all of these earthly kingdoms. We need to hold on to what is good and what is true and what is beautiful according to God. We need to teach that to our children. We need to teach that to our grandchildren. And we need to not be embarrassed about it. Whatever they want to call us, whatever they want to do to us, to abuse us for not playing their stupid games, if we hold true and hold fast to what God's Word says, then that will endure, and that will be a good godly legacy worth erecting statues to, worth having plaques in remembrance of, worth writing history books about, and worth our descendants for generations and generations and generations to come being proud of and not ashamed of. I think that's often missed in the midst of these stressful times, The decisions we make on who we decide to be in these times decides what centuries to come of our descendants will have to reckon with. And so we should choose carefully. We should choose carefully what to say and what to do. We should act not unwisely, but wisely. How should we then live? We should act wisely. We should live wisely. We should live a godly life, fearing God, because we know that God rewards those who honor Him, who fear Him, who serve Him in all times, in all places, in all cultures. God wants representation. He wants representation for His standard of right conduct and of truth. So let's bring that, let's be about that. That's all I've got for this episode. I've got to go make ready because Truck City in Greeley, Colorado opens up in 36 minutes and I hope they've got my work truck ready so I can go pick it up and get to work. But anyway, you slice it off to call, figure out where they're at with that, figure out what to do next if they're not ready. And therefore, I've got to get off this podcast recording business. But as always, thank you for listening. And uh, sorry for the week of lag time, almost a week of lag time between my last episode and this episode. But as always, thank you for listening. I can tell that there's a core group of listeners who consistently listen and I don't know all of who you are but I'm glad to know you even just as a number and when you engage when you like when you comment when you send me messages or hit me up in person those of you who know me in person I'm glad to know you and I'm glad you're listening and I hope this is a benefit and an encouragement to you but I got to leave it there as always thank you for listening